the observance of Good Friday in our hearts begins when we recover a sense of, of shock and of astonishment at all the events leading up to the cross. With over 2,000 years of Good Friday worship services under our belts and hundreds of millions, if not billions, of crosses hanging from the necks of the human race, it's pretty hard to experience the crucifixion any longer with the same kind of shock. The cross fits our imaginations, kind of like a comfy pair of socks, nice and loose, but perhaps a little bit uh, too comfy and stretched out. Arguably, one of the hardest things about um, worship during Holy Week is trying to re-experience or get a sense of the trauma of those original events for those who were present. The prophet Isaiah fully anticipated hundreds of years before these events ever took place how unbelievable and how astonishing they, they would be. He says, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. Who has believed what he has heard from us? This astonishment is not a, a positive astonishment. It is negative. It is horror. It is the kind of astonishment that some of us experience when 9-11 uh, happened, when planes were flying into the buildings and we could see pictures of people jumping out of windows because that was a better death than being burned alive. It is horrible. It is too horrible to be true, and yet it is true. What happened to Jesus was so horrible that it is nearly unbelievable. The torture, the beatings were so severe that he was beyond recognition. He was dehumanized like a piece of meat hanging on a hook in a market. And in the ancient world, there was nothing more shameful or more humiliating than death by crucifixion. The secular historian Tom Holland describes the Roman practice of crucifixion this way. He says, no death, no death was more excruciating, more contemptible than crucifixion, to be hung naked, long in agony, swelling with ugly wheels on shoulders and chest, helpless to beat away the clamorous birds. Such a fate, Roman intellectuals agreed, was the worst imaginable. And this, in turn, was what rendered it so suitable a punishment for slaves. In the exposure of the crucified to the public gaze, there lurked a paradox. So far was the carrion reek of their disgrace that many felt tainted even by viewing a crucifixion. And it was this disgust that crucifixion uniquely inspired which explained why when slaves were condemned to death, they were executed in the meanest, wretchedest stretch of land beyond the city walls. The paradox that Holland observes about the Roman practice was that even though they were avid practitioners of crucifixion. The spectacle of it as a means of death was uh, so cruel that they didn't even want to see it for themselves. They felt tainted by even viewing a crucifixion, and so they avoided it. 
This, of course, is the same logic behind why the Nazis set up all their death camps and gas chambers outside the borders of Germany, because they did not want that kind of death in their backyard. And maybe this is why Good Friday is so hard for us to engage with imagination. It's too hard to look at, to really focus upon, because we want to hide our faces. We want to look away. This is precisely what Isaiah tells us would happen. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one with whom, from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. But the deeper truth is this, to look at the cross and the horror and to be astonished by the cruelty of it is to gaze as into a mirror. It is to be reminded of the brutality and of the violence of which we are capable as human beings. This is very different from the kinds of violence and brutality that we in TVs and movies and video games consume all the time. That kind of violence numbs us because it's about entertainment and it seems unreal. And the effect ultimately is to make us more desensitized to actual horror and violence in the world. But the cross of Christ confronts us with the true horrors of which the human race is capable. It tells us that this is not an anomaly of otherwise well-meaning human beings. It is not an epiphenomenon of evil that just sort of pops into the world. This is who we are. I just consider in the year 2022, there in the United States was recorded uh, 647 uh, uh, shootings, mass shootings, in which over 21 of them, in which five or more people were killed. This is not even to include the, the dozen or so mass shootings that have happened uh, in the past three months, the most recent being the Nashville Christian school shooting. I think we look back to Rome and to ancient civilizations and see them as brutal and violent and bloody and for ourselves as, as more enlightened and moral. But the reality is, is that in America, we are no more civilized than ancient Rome, no less brutal, no less violent. To look upon the cross is as if to look into a mirror and to see a grim and grisly visage of our own depraved nature. It is to be astonished by our own evil. But it's not just these extreme forms of violence, right? The spectacle of evil that we see mirrored in the death of Jesus. The cross as well reveals all of our small and large sins alike. How the total collection of our small actions or inactions led to the death of Jesus to larger evils from the greed and betrayal of Judas to the desertion of his disciples to the denial of Peter to the indifference of the crowd as Jesus is being tried to the cowardice of Pilate and the corruption of the high priests. The death of Jesus is made possible through a systematic yet seemingly uncoordinated series of coincidences of human cruelty, failure, apathy, fear, and self-interest. We didn't plan it this way, but it just happened that way. Everyone 
in the Gospels bears some responsibility, some complicity. And again, this should astonish us at how much evil and wrong we are capable of, even when we're not even trying to be evil and wrong. Again, the, the cross is like a spotlight into the human heart of darkness. But perhaps even more shocking about the cross is the identity of the one who suffers. This is the servant of the Lord, the Holy One of God, righteous, innocent. Again, as Isaiah says, he had no violence, he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. How could one so righteous suffer so severely? How could one so good be treated so badly? And the shock of all Israel was this. Here we have Jesus of Nazareth, the one who is healing, feeding the poor, preaching the kingdom. How could this have happened to him? How could God let this happen? Why didn't God intervene? Most astonishing of all is Isaiah's answer to why it happened. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It was the Lord's will to crush him. How can this be? Why would it be God's will to have his servant crushed? What could this possibly mean? This is not just the prophet Isaiah's interpretation of the meaning of Jesus' death or what he looked towards. It is also the New Testament's understanding as well. Jesus' death was not a freak accident or a tragedy merely, but it was mysteriously part of the divine plan. As Peter will say later in the book of Acts when he is preaching to the nation about Jesus, who's been crucified and raised from the dead. Peter says this, he says, he was crucified by lawless men, but it was nevertheless according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Even though it was God's plan, that does not get us off the hook. Jesus' death wasn't God's plan gone sideways. This was a plan from the beginning. And Jesus says this in so many words on multiple occasions to his disciples. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus understood clearly that his suffering and his death was part of a bigger divine plan. But what kind of plan is this, right? This is a, this is a crazy plan. It's insane. And here we find ourselves at the very heart and center of the cross and what it means, what Paul calls the scandal of the cross. The most astonishing thing of all, the death of the Son of God was the divine plan from the beginning, the plan from before he was conceived in the womb of Mary. Centuries before it ever happened, the prophet sees this and he tells us all about it. And this is his reasoning. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we of sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him, 
the iniquity of us all. Why was it the Lord's will to crush him? That he might stand in our place. That he might bear the guilt that we could not bear. That in becoming human as the servant, he would step into our shoes. He would bear our sorrows, our grief, our guilt, our shame, our wanderings, our punishment, our inequities, our transgressions. In other words, that he would become our substitute. This is the meaning of that phrase, Jesus died for your sins. He became a substitute. Instead of you dying for your sins, he dies for your sins. I mean, this is the the, the essence of the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. What was initially astonishingly, astonishingly bad news on further understanding and reflection becomes astonishingly good news. Jesus becomes our substitute for our own death. John Stott writes about the meaning of this substitution. Substitution lies at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is that man, of man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God, and God puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone, and God accepts penalties that belong to him, man alone. This is what the early church fathers called the wonderful exchange. He takes our sin, we take his righteousness. He takes our punishment, we take his reward. He takes our pain, we take his healing. He takes our sorrows, we take his joy. He takes our alienation and separation from God, and we take the love of the Father and the peace that we have with God. That's what it means for him to be our substitute, our wonderful exchange. And this is what Paul's getting at when he talks about the ministry of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians, he says, In Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but for our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. God, I mean, this is a mystery. It's such a mystery. God made him to be sin who did not know sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And what this reveals to us about God is not just the righteousness and the justice of God, but the love of God. Good Friday is a time to recover our sense of astonishment, a sense of astonishment at what the cross actually represents, which is not a religious symbol that can be nicely domesticated, (laughs) something that is truly horrifying. It is to be astonished at that event, but also to be astonished as we look in the mirror of that event of the, of the, the great evil and depravity of which we are capable and which we have committed. But even greater astonishment is this. As we grapple with the deeper meaning of the cross, we become astonished by the love of God that is demonstrated there that Jesus stepped into our place that he becomes our substitute, that he bears our guilt and our shame and the wrong and the death and everything 
that we might take his life and righteousness. What wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul? What wondrous love is this, O my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul, to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? Amen.